This is Ira Glass, host of Your Radio Playhouse. And starting this week, WBEZ is moving the program that usually begins right at this time, Selected Shorts, to Friday nights at 8 o'clock. So if you want to hear Selected Shorts, tune in on Fridays at 8. And WBEZ is rebroadcasting my Friday night program, Your Radio Playhouse, right here, right now, after Prairie Home Companion. This is a little radio programming experiment. The idea is that since my program is radio storytelling plus music, it has some things in common with Prairie Home Companion and might be the kind of thing that Garrison Keillor fans would enjoy. WBEZ is going to try this out for a few months, and WBEZ management welcomes your thoughts and reactions to this uh, programming idea. Your Radio Playhouse has been on the radio on Friday nights now for several months, and if you haven't heard it, the stories are told in a wide variety of styles by a wide variety of writers and performers, and some of the program just happens right here in the radio studio. For example, this week's program is about love. It's for the week of Valentine's Day. And we begin with this cassette, I have it here, that a friend sent me for the Valentine's Day holiday. This is a guided meditation for singles, presented by Freda Kafka. And, you know, normally if you're going to make something like this up, you actually would give the person, uh, you know, you'd make up a name like Freda Kafka, but I'm afraid this is all too real. Freda Kafka, produced by something called Conscious Singles Connection Incorporated, copyright 1994. And this cassette has lots of ideas for things that singles, conscious singles presumably, can do so they don't feel bad on holidays like Valentine's Day. You know, you can give yourself a very special day alone if that's what you're going to do with your holiday. You can prepare for it, actually prepare in advance. You can buy flowers for yourself. You can light candles. You can plan a special ritual a special meal just for you. You can even write yourself letters about it, poems. You can listen to very wonderful music on that day. Well, from WBEZ Chicago, to your radio playhouse, I'm Ira Glass. And you know, you didn't have to prepare in advance for this hour. We, we have prepared the whole thing for you. We have set the table. We've lit the candles. It's all set. Oh, conscious singles. And couples, you couples who are sensitive to your consciously single friends. Very special hour for you. So stay with us. amazing about this tape to me is its utter lack of modesty about what it promises. It doesn't just promise to make you feel, you know, a little better about being single. It is categorical. It promises complete spiritual and emotional peace. When you're done listening to this cassette, it says you will, you will be at peace with being single. You'll feel happy. You'll feel fulfilled. And you know, you can do it. By simply relaxing. You know, what could be easier? What what could be easier? All you need to do is pay attention to your breath. This isn't dumb. <laughs> I don't know. It's not working for me. <laughs> is, 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 are you breathing there at home? Are you? 
If you're in your car, are, are you are you breathing right now? And and is this is it happening? Are you finding peace? She also says this sentence, which I love. And the rest is up to me. That is a sentence you never hear in the English language. I have never. Usually, when people get into the construction, and the rest is up to. You know, that's a pretty common construction in school, in sales situations, in, in over the TV. You know, just so you hear that a lot. And people never go into the construction and the rest is up to and end up with me. No, it's, all, it's, it's always you. And the rest is up to me. She also says this other thing that I find mesmerizing but incomprehensible, and it's this. You don't even need to listen. What is that about? You know, she's in the tape business. She, and you know, she's not like, you know, it's not like a video thing. It's, it's, it's a cassette of, with sound. You don't even need to listen. We don't say that, you know, if, if at the beginning of our radio show we would say to you, Hi, we've been working really hard to prepare a really good show for you. And there's one other thing you've got to know. You don't even need to listen. We would never, unless it was some sort of reverse psychology thing. You know what I mean? Like we've used all the, <laughs> we've used all the promotional tactics we could think of. And now we're doing reverse psychology. We're doing reverse psychology, and what we're saying is... You don't even need to listen. Yeah. That will be the day. So, side one of the tape is a kind of warm-up to the actual meditation, and side two is the guided meditation itself. And she has us relax, breathe deeply, which we have all been practicing earlier in the show. And then she says, pretend you're having a dream. And the dream she has us pretend is astonishingly banal. We pretend, you know, we're floating among clouds. And you can let that cloud carry you. Spiraling up over the roof. Yeah. Floating over the trees. Way up over the mountains. You know, if you had to pay for dreams, <laughs> this this is one you wouldn't even rent. You know what I mean? You wouldn't even rent this one at the video store. So you float in the dream. And of course, because all the elements have to be involved, you, there's air and there's clouds and you float past the mountain. And then you come, of course, to a river. And this is where she gets to the heart of the matter. Remember, the promise of the tape is that she is going to make you feel good about your singlehood and at peace with it. And how does she do it? It's, it's really fascinating. She does it by having you imagine the person who you're meant to be with. This person understands you and loves you and knows exactly what to say to you. In other words, the whole way that you're going to come to peace with your singlehood is to just envision the day when you're not single. That seems like kind of a cheat to me. That isn't being at peace with singlehood. That's simply believing that your singlehood is a temporarily delayed state that will lead to couplehood. This person can be male or female. It may not even really be a person. What is that about? Like, what is the... Like, what is the bet that she's hedging there? Like, you know, who is she trying not to offend? Like, okay, we've got the people who are involved with the males, we've got the people involved with the females, and then we just want to be sure, like, we, we get everybody in. The people who are involved with... What, a horse? And this person 
will come as close to you as you wish and touch you in any way that feels good for you. Take your time now and let yourself feel the way you'd like to be touched. You might like just a touch on the shoulder or an arm around you. You might like a hand on your forehead. Or maybe you'd like to be held or rocked. You can have whatever you want from this person. At this point in the tape, I have to say for me anyway, it kind of starts to, it kind of starts to work on me. I start to think like, yes, I, I, I do want, I do want this person who's going to hold me and, and, and be the person who totally understands me. This person is here for you. From your future. And one of the things that's interesting to me about this is is not just that it's so effective, but that it's such a lie. I mean, if you've ever been in an actual relationship, no human being who you're going to be with is going to, you know, be there to, you know, touch you the way you want to be touched every time and talk to you the way you want to be talked to every time. And the fact that this could be a comfort to someone I think it's just a sign of how much we want this. You know, that we want this person. In the New Yorker magazine this week, John Updike writes about Lana Turner's seven husbands. He says, There's something ridiculous about a woman who takes seven husbands, as if she had rummaged through the drawers of masculinity and come up with seven dwarves. And I think that actually what's ridiculous about it isn't that there was anything wrong with those seven guys, that they were dwarves. What's ridiculous is, is the notion that she could be married to seven different people and be happy with none of them, that she herself would not be able to find happiness with any of those guys. And the reason why she didn't find happiness with those guys was because she was waiting for another guy. You know, she was waiting for the guy on this cassette who doesn't exist. You know, what, what do we do with that dream? You know, the dream that love is going to knock at the door. Like in some melodrama, like, like, a, like a TV soap opera. What, what do we do about it when we've heard love call before and watched ourselves mess it up? What do we do? In this hour, that dream and the difficulty of that dream. Love and a happiness But wait a minute, something's going wrong Someone's on the phone Three o'clock in the morning Talking about how she can make it right, yeah. Happiness is when you really feel good about somebody. There's nothing wrong being in love with someone, yeah. 
special pre-Valentine's Day love program in three acts. Act one, yearning with setbacks. Act two, sex and sex and sex. Act three, a wedding. this image, a woman in a crushed red velvet dress, lying on her stomach on the ground. The dress has a train that's 60 feet long, trailing behind her. Her face looks like the face of someone who's been making out in the back seat of a car for hours. Her mouth is swollen and puffy from kissing. Lipstick is smeared everywhere, on her mouth and chin. A dab is on her nose. She's kissing the ground, methodically, with purpose. She kisses the ground, applies a fresh coat of lipstick, kisses again, applies another coat, kisses again. She's gone through 11 tubes of lipstick in 25 hours. There's that sweet, lipsticky perfume in the air. She's spelling out words on the floor in lipstick. Each letter is two feet high. The words say... There was a time when I worshipped the ground you walked on. I'm making a monument to my ex-boyfriend. The woman's named Julie Lafine, and the ex-boyfriend, she says, was everything she wanted to be. Creative, together. She says she did worship the ground he walked on. She says she was the kind of person who was always in love with the fantasy of being in love. And I've, I've worked really hard to maintain that fantasy in the face of all information about reality, the reality of the situation. When she first started kissing the ground in public, his performance art, a part of her wish that the ex-boyfriend would find out Maybe he would see that she had put him behind her. Maybe he'd have regrets. Maybe he'd get in touch with her. Who among us has not known this particular mix of conflicting feelings towards an ex? Julie Lafine moved on to other kissing projects. I kissed all the names of my ex-lovers onto public property. I kissed the names on parking meters and benches and sidewalks and glass windows. And when I kissed their names, I actually would flash to that person and really dwell on them. And it was this very kind of releasing activity. When I got to the last person's name, um, I kissed it onto this big concrete wall. And I thought, 
this is the last person in my life. This is the last relationship that I've had. This is actually the last relationship I will ever have. And I sort of saw myself as now I was going to take this role of the eternal spinster. When she does these performance art pieces, Kissing the Ground, she says that sometimes she feels like this non-entity. People stand near her, talk about what she's doing as if she's not there. And when she leaves, they walk on the words she's made with her mouth, turn them into a big red blur on the ground. And Julie Lafine says there's something about kissing, compulsively, for hours, that's partly like being out of control, and partly very peaceful, meditative. She slides along the ground, kissing out the pattern of each letter. The other day, this guy came in selling peanuts for the homeless. And he walked in and he said, is this what I think it is? And I said, I don't know, what do you think it is? And he said, are these all lip marks? And I said, yes. And he said, I wish I were the guy that these were meant for. There's the yearning for love that we feel when we've actually loved someone and been loved. And then there's the yearning for love that you feel if you haven't. Mark O'Brien is a writer in California, but because of a childhood case of polio, he lives most of each day in an iron lung on his back. He's the subject of this uh, amazing little film, new film, called Breathing Lessons. And the film is remarkable because it's about a guy in an iron lung, but it is completely unsentimental. And in certain moments, it's also pretty funny. The film is by Jessica Yu, and it was just at the Sundance Film Festival. And Jessica Yu gave us permission to excerpt a memorable little scene from the film here on our radio show. Because he's in the Iron Lung, Mark O'Brien has attendants cook and help him out during the day. And during the film, he explains that these days, he always has men do this job. Because when he had women do the job, he kept falling in love with them. And the love was never reciprocated. He wrote about one of these women. Her pale, perfect skin, her strong, fleshy legs drove me to ecstasies of despair. See, she talked with me as a human instead of her savagely crippled employer. Here's a little scene about desire and yearning from this film. I hired a sex surrogate in 87 or 86. I forget when. I just felt very crazy. I was angry at all women for not falling in love with me because I'd fall in love with several attendants and they uh, they all said it was a business relationship. A sex surrogate is a person who has some psychological training but works with their body having sex with a client who's referred by a therapist. Surrogate had this big mirror she Show me naked and aroused. I thought of myself as the ugliest man in the world. But I just like something someone who I have sex with. Uh, not just my dick, but my whole body. And Cheryl was very kind to me. She kissed me on the chest after we had intercourse. I felt my 
dress was very unattractive. She kissed me right there. The intercourse was so quick. It was, I hate to say it, but it was grand bang. Thank you, ma'am. And it, uh, it wasn't as great as I thought it would be, but being naked in a bed with a woman was being extremely friendly. It was the most fun I've ever had. I, I think I'd like to do it again. Usually, Mark O'Brien can't be outside of his iron lung for more than 45 minutes. But when the sex surrogate was with him, he was outside his tube for longer than that, longer than he almost ever goes out. And he didn't even use his portable respirator. I didn't need it for an hour. I went for an hour without it. I should think of sex as respiratory therapy. Maybe Medi-Cal would pay for it. About a year after I last saw her, I just felt terribly depressed. I expected some of it. Seeing the surrogate would change my life. I started wearing cologne, and I thought everyone would be able to tell I was sexy and handsome, but nothing happened. They tell us to think of ourselves as sexual and beautiful, but it doesn't do any good. Unless someone else sees us as sexual and beautiful. You just can't demand love. You have to be lovable. I'm still trying to figure out how to do that. This is Luis Rodriguez, and the piece is called Waiting. What made the waiting so painful? The woman had called. She was on her way. Tense, I waited, sitting at the kitchen table. There had been too many nights waking up to bottles and books on the floor. Two small children parked on blankets in a corner. Alone ain't so bad. Dreams of women yet to be touched, to be smelled. It ain't bad. Up on a hill hidden by wood and shingle shacks, alongside curbless roads, visited by nobody unless they had to be here. Alone ain't so bad. Hammering holes into walls with fists, tears streaming down my face at saxophone rips, looking at old photos, feeding babies, taking out trash, and thinking of her. It ain't so bad. I couldn't stand it. Looked through personal ads in the weeklies, made phone calls, wrote letters, came across video dates, the godsend for lonely people. I called after three false starts. Lady said she would be here Saturday. It's Saturday and I'm going nuts. An hour finding the place, an old stucco white basement room. You can't miss it. Cholo graffiti on the front door. She came, made her pits, saw the hurt in my eyes. I always spoke with my eyes, damn it. A longing for sweet companionship. Not of drunken homeboys or angel-dusted street women. 
for the mother of my kids out at Sunny's Lounge, sucking Kahluas and highballs and shooting out wicked smiles at discoed out dudes. The lady looked in my eyes and then stopped, refused to sell me the video date, refused to take the check. This can't help you, she said, and walked out. He asked me to go for a walk. I said no, even though I knew I wanted to. This story about wanting love from Dolores Wilbur. We were sweeping out the cottage, cleaning up. It was time to go home. We had to leave that afternoon, less than a couple of hours away. He just looked at me without expression, not sure of how he should look. He knew I would go for a walk. He knew I wanted to. I knew I would as well, but I wanted to say no to try it out. I gave in almost immediately. So we walked. I kicked stones, watching my feet. There were trees on either side of us. He said, I don't have anything to say. I just wanted to walk with you. I said stupid things. Or maybe it is that they weren't stupid, but saying them out loud sounded so stupid. He said, how do you feel? I said, upset. He nodded. I hated that he nodded. He knew it was going badly, and he began to feel miserable. He tried to think of something to say. I said, I don't understand you. We thought we were alike, but we find we are not. I hate when you say you're sorry you hurt my feelings. You didn't hurt my feelings. You hurt me. And you're dumb. Why are you doing this? I hate this conversation. I hate this kind of conversation. He said, I hate this conversation, too. I hate it so much. I said, well, you're the man. You're the one making it all wrong. You figure it out. He said, I'm the one who's supposed to fix it. Is that it? I said, we can't be friends. We can't. I can't. It's not what I want. He nodded, looked down, looked away, looked anxious, afraid to say anything. After a while, he said, how you feel now? This has happened to me before. What? I said. He told me something that only made me mad. He wanted someone who didn't want him, and it took a long time to be over. So what? I thought. Who cares? It's not the same. He said, can't we be friends? We can talk on the phone, but we can't see each other, I said. But will we talk to be friends? He said. No, I said. He said, what will we say? Hi, how are you? I'm fine. That's all. I don't know, I said. We walked aimlessly. It was hot. We looked for shade. He stopped at a bunch of rocks marking the gate in front of a white picket fence. He picked up one of the rocks with both hands. It was big and rough, salt and pepper with white spindly lines running through it. Some bits of sparkly dust glinted off it in the sun. He stood holding it to his chest for a moment, and then, looking around, gently put it down somewhere else, less than a foot away. There. Doesn't it look better now, he said. He looked satisfied, relieved at what he had done. I fought back irritation and wondered what this meant to him. I guessed it was because he had done something. Sometimes just doing any one thing can make you feel better. It doesn't matter what. 
the look on his face, picking up the rock, moving it, walking. It all made me so tired. Do you want to turn around, I said. He said yes, looking anxious again. Then no, knowing he had said the wrong thing. We sat on a mound of tall, reedy grass down from a tree. It was cooler. I said, what are you thinking? He said, tall grass, and looked at me. His eyes were wide open. I smiled at him. He said things like that, and I loved him. He lounged, and I sat and picked up twigs and pushed them into the soft, moist ground, reaching for pieces of bark, different mottled surfaces, rough but warm and comforting in my hands. I placed them carefully between the twigs. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm making a pile for a little animal to find and to use. And besides, the bark is so pretty. He said, I'm breaking up little pieces of twig and hiding them around. He laughed edgy and said, yeah, that's me, hiding stuff like nobody could see. I wondered if he loved me, if he really loved me. That morning in bed, he said, I love you, I love you. But when I said, then why? He couldn't answer. Now he said, I like you so much, so very much. And I noticed he didn't say love. It didn't matter so much. I just looked at the words for a while. I looked at the sound the words made after they were said. I knew he loved me, but that he didn't know what that meant. And the truth was that I didn't either. And I wasn't sure that it made any difference. We walked back to the cabin holding each other. It was warm again. Our bodies were wet against each other. The wet felt good. We walked up to the house. I held his hand tightly for a moment. He let go too quickly, and I pressed my lips together. I watched him walk up the steps, push open the screen door. The breeze caught the door, and it swung for a moment, back and forth. I waited outside for him to lock up. in part two of our program less gloomy stories not so many sad stories of yearning instead stories of love 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 and sex 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 and um, marriage stay with us it's your radio playhouse
Act two. It's your radio playhouse. I'm Ira Glass. Sex. What would a Valentine's Day show be without sex? And we're going to start with this story of sexual discovery put together by audio artist Gregory Whitehead, who lives in Massachusetts. Um, Just a little warning here. Some of the material in the next two stories might be unsuitable for younger listeners. I was 13, and he was 15. And we were going to go to the movies. We went to the Blue Star Shopping Center on Route 22 to see Live or Let Die. And I think his mother drove us. And we sat in the movie next to each other, and he didn't make a move. And nothing happened. And then his father came and picked us up and drove us back to his house. So he said, do you want to come up to mine? And um, as we went into his room, he closed the door and said, we're not allowed to lock our doors in my house. So otherwise he would have locked the door. So, I don't know, he like, roamed around and was showing me stuff and I was just being sort of polite and showing me all his like, toys and junk and silly things that he had and then proceeded to make the moves, make the big moves on me. And I was just very innocent. And he was very aggressive and just started kissing me and then just said, take off your shirt. And so I'm sitting there thinking, well, the door is is unlocked. And he said, well, you know, he had a little sister who was pestering us. (laughs) So eventually, I figured he unzips his pants. just walk in and he's like, well, no. And asked me, do I want to see it? I did. And of course, I want to see it. I mean, I want to know what it looks like. But at the same time, I feel like I'm in this incredibly ominous, this is a dangerous situation that I'm in here. It's not, it's pornographic happening the way I'm just a little girl. I mean, now I know how much of a little girl I was. I was just 13. I mean, 13 is young. But there it was. It was this mindless thing. And I thought, well, look at me. I should say, just say, because that's when I see a jump. This is what I have to do. So, yeah, so he whips it off. And we both sit and we look at it. (laughs) And he says, well, do you want to touch it? And I, I didn't want to. I just wanted to. But I did. To get to a safe place. It was just horrible and like dirty. More dirty than anything I've ever done since. <laughs> Even trying to be dirty. <laughs> um, it was clinical and I felt like I was being experimented upon. And the worst thing was that I was so passive. And I did what I was told because I was a good girl. It was like gang 
to him. Now that I, I mean, now that I'm older, now that I think about it, it was a game. It wasn't playful. It was a very sophisticated game. It was a game of erotic, and it wasn't loving to. It was just coerce someone, or to seduce someone, or 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 to seduce a little girl. It was as if you were you were forty, and. So here was this. But there it was. There was this mindless thing. I've never seen before. And he would look at me and, and that I had to be curious about. I see a jump, but so he could like you know make it move <laughs> and flop around all by itself. So now it's it a there. horrible situation. Things. This mindless thing, but it has a mind of its own and a body of its own. So it moved around, and I was just appalled. I had no idea that this is what happened. That you could like make it move all by itself without touching, and that it just stood up. It stood straight up. It was just. It was like. It was like his little ventriloquist dummy that he could make talk to me. It wasn't playful. And finally, erotic. Either his sister was wasn't loving. We put our clothes back on, and and my mother came and picked us up. And I walked outside on his nice suburban lawn. And his mother was there, and my mother was talking to his mother. And I stared at our mothers. But then I knew I could never tell so I could never be in a safe place. If they knew what had been going on. So I could never be in a safe place. I just wanted to get out of there. To get to a safe place. But then I knew I could never tell anyone what had happened. So I could never be in a safe place. Oh, darling. It's gone past midnight. And won't you do me justice now? Okay, honey. I'll really come along now. Mm-hmm. Can't you feel the night so very cold? The bed and blanket also cold. Pull me closer and put out the light and then do me justice. Oh, darling, please do. I said do me justice now. associate producers here at your radio playhouse, Nancy Updike, has this small sociological discovery about sex in America. It's an odd sort of discovery about one of the most politicized aspects of sex in America, condom use. I just want to know, am I the last one to know about this? 
because the first time I had sex without a condom was only a few months ago. I was dating this 21-year-old Irish boy with a creamy body and a big mouth. After the first time we skipped it, we never used a condom. At the time, I was living with my best friend, Sarah. She and I were sort of married, and we told each other everything. One morning, leaving my lovely boyfriend sprawled out and sleeping, I went next door to Sarah's room and sat down on her bed. So how's the sex? She smiled. Fun, I said. Not the greatest ever, but vigorous and sort of sweet. Pause. I wanted to tell her about the whole condom thing because I knew she was assuming we were using them, mistaking us every day for good, righteous people instead of the bad, irresponsible people we in fact were, and the longer it went on, the more it felt like I was lying. We're not using condoms, I blurted it out, looking down. There was a long pause. Josh and I aren't using them either, she said. I looked up. We stared at each other for a second, and we burst out laughing. It may be hard to convey the strange giddiness of this moment to anyone who didn't go to college in the late 80s and early 90s. For Sarah and me and for our girlfriends, safe sex was the marker of the modern straight post-AIDS feminist. She has sex with who she wants and when she wants, but she always protects herself. It was about self-respect, and it was about being down with the cause. Sisters knew that sisters used condoms. Well, that was then. Here are some of the sisters now. I really, I don't think anybody uses them anymore. I used them, oh my God, <laughs> many moons ago. Well, kind of. We use them once in a while, like right around the time that I know that I'm ovulating. Statistics seem to indicate that, in fact, very few women are practicing safe sex. Nationwide, only about 20% of currently sexually active women report using condoms, and one out of five of those condom-using women hadn't used one the last time they had intercourse. Gay men, in contrast, seem more careful, but even here, a San Francisco survey showed only half of gay men saying they use a condom every time they have sex. Interestingly, these studies, the most current according to the Centers for Disease Control, are four years old and are based on data collected four years before that, at the height of my alleged safe sex vigilance and that of my friends. So what now seems clear is that a massive nationwide campaign to shape our sex lives failed. And no one is talking about the fact that it failed. Most of us are not practicing safe sex and never did. At least not in that every time for the whole time, no exceptions way that safe sex as we knew it was all about. And now, nearly everyone I know seems paralyzed in this weird state that's part shame at what we see as laziness about using condoms and part stubborn attachment to our secret decision not to use them as often as we feel we should. For instance, I started out scared about not using condoms with my cute Irish boyfriend and had to keep rationalizing what we were doing by reminding myself that he was a drunk, not a junkie, and that he'd gotten head from a boy only once and hadn't liked it. But then fear faded to guilt, and now I don't even think the guilt makes sense. I'm not using condoms, and my women friends are not using condoms, because when we look around, we are not dying of this disease, and neither is anyone we're sleeping with. And it's been that way for 10 years now. Heterosexual, non-drug-using women simply have not, as a group, become the much-feared second wave of the AIDS epidemic, as we were always being warned in college that we would. 
only 8% of all diagnosed AIDS cases in the United States are from heterosexual contact, according to the CDC. But we keep calling ourselves lazy, my friends and I, I think because we're feeling like bad feminists. Giving up safe sex means giving up that solidarity we believed in back when it seemed like we were all going to be at risk together. Gay men, straight women, women across lines of race and class and age, all of us united against a single, deadly, common enemy. Five years later, I think it's only a matter of time before the phrase, no glove, no love, sounds to us the way sisterhood is powerful sounds to our mothers. Shakespeare ends his comedies with weddings, and it's easy to see why. You want a moment of joy, you know, of hope, at the end of any program that touches on the idea of love. Okay. Hold his hand. All right, now, whatever I say in English, you're going to tell him in Spanish. If you walk downstairs in Chicago City Hall, you know, you take the escalator down when you walk in that front door on um, whatever street that is. If you walk downstairs and you turn right, you come to marriage court. Cost ten bucks. There's a big sign saying right up front, you can't offer the judge a gratuity. And you know, you get the license down the hall and then there's a one day waiting period, like if you buy a handgun or something, they don't want people rushing into it. Twelve thousand five hundred thirty people were married in this court last year. That's more than any other place in Illinois, as best as anybody can figure. I'm gonna ask him about eight questions. Now I don't want him to answer each question. When I'm all done with the eight questions, ocho, then I'll say to him, okay, Francisco, what is your answer? 
and he'll answer once. Tell him that. Wednesday morning, Francisco and Herminio Orozco stood before Judge Arthur Rosenblum. Herminio spoke English, but Francisco didn't. And although it was happening in a basement office with dingy carpet, and although the groom was in jeans with a Coors belt buckle and a leather jacket, and although they brought no witnesses, and although both of them were planning on going to work after the wedding, her at an insurance office and him at a record store, there was still something moving about watching her translate the vows, looking in the eyes of her husband-to-be. Well, that, that is once they actually got started. Okay. okay. Ready? Here yes. we go. Francisco, do you take her to be your wife and to live together with her as husband and wife? What are you looking at me for? Mm -hmm. Translate it. And live together with her as husband and wife. Do you promise to love her, honor her, and respect her? Do you promise to be her friend? Do you promise to take care of her whether she's sick or whether she's well? Judge Rosenblum looks in their eyes as he does the ceremony. He doesn't have a piece of paper or anything with the script. And after both of them did their vows, Judge Rosenblum gave a little speech about the wedding rings, about how they symbolize an endless love, an endless friendship. And both of them put on the rings. All right. Your senor esposa. Un grande abrazo. A big embrace, he says. Beso, beso. Kiss, kiss. So they do. Judge Rosenblum has done a few things to make weddings in City Hall a little more human. He's replaced the generic hotel art in the office with a Norman Rockwell print. One whole wall of his office is lined with snapshots of happy couples, him in the middle. In this office, you see the whole range of couples, all ages and races, all incomes, though a lot of people come to City Hall because it's so cheap, and the full range of happy and unhappy couples. Joan Healy is the menchy, good-humored, completely wonderful woman who greets you when you walk into the office and arrive at the front window. She's the one who takes her 10 bucks. And she says that she sees some couples she, frankly, has to worry about a little. I really think walk away, walk away. It's a long life together, long life together. And, and what are you seeing when you think that? What are they doing? I get a funny feeling in the tone of voice that they use to one another. This is kidding on the square. You are saying this, and you're kind of hurting that person. So I, you know, what? Or just maybe sitting in a chair if one one will sit go and sit in the chair and the one that I kinda think is not the nice one would probably go sit in another chair on the other side of the room, not really even wanting to be together. Things like that. Just kinda shake your head and say by the time you get up to the escalator, the top of the escalator, I hope they're still together. <laughs> in his chambers, between weddings, Judge Rosenblum reads and smokes a pipe. He was out till midnight the night before I visited in his regular gin rummy game. He's 79, married twice, but not currently married. He says that there's nothing the rabbi could have said to him under the marriage canopy when he got married that would have been useful advice. Each marriage runs the course it's supposed to, he says. It's just dumb luck. Nobody can really tell you anything. I don't know. Some should marry, some should not. Some do, some will last, some won't last. That's true of life and anything. Right? Joan, yes. let me ask you something. Yes. Why do people get married? Oh, for various reasons. Some for love, some for money, some I don't know why. <laughs> well, you married for money, right? Oh, yes. Can you <laughs> tell? <laughs> yes. 
If couples seem interested, Judge Rosenblum will pull a book out of his upper left-hand desk drawer and read a little bit. The book is Khalil Gibran's The Prophet. This book is a great allegory. You know, an allegory is a story like a parable. And what it does is it, it tells you something which really means something else. He turns to the chapters on love and marriage. I'll only read the parts that are, are worldwide known. But if in your fear you would seek only love's peace and love's pleasure, then it is better for you that you cover your nakedness and pass out of love's threshing floor in the seasonless world where you shall laugh, but not with all of your laughter, and weep, but not with all of your tears. It can take away your faith in the romance of marriage to see 12,000 of them in a year. But Judge Rosenblum says he sees his share of truly happy couples in this job. The other woman working up front, Michelle Roberts, says that despite this job, she's still glad to be married when she goes home at night. And every day, dozens more arrive to take their vows, some dressed in formal wear, some in jeans, many with children in tow. Valentine's Day turns out to be the busiest day of the year here. 145 marriages last Valentine's Day. The halls were jammed. The elevator jammed. The escalator jammed. With people who couldn't wait to get married on the holiday of love. Well, before we end our show, there's a song that we've actually been saving to play for Valentine's Day. We recorded this back around Christmas. And these are kids um, at the Daniel J. Nellum Youth Services in Chicago. And uh, they sing this little, uh, this little song that they made up, a little, little crush song. Um, they include Antoine Robinson, Warren Harris, Sean Cook, Edward G. Robinson Jr., Willie Weddington, Curtis Perry, and Nate Settles. Here's a song. Shoe up, should we do up, should we do? Shoe up, should we do up, should we do? Shoe up, should we do up, should we do? Shoe up, should we do up, should we do? Shoe up, should we do up, should we do? I think about you all the time, you're always on my mind. Anybody ever tell you, girl, you're so fine. Every time I see you, I don't know what to do. You put me in the day, and I want to spend my life with you. Each and every day, ready? Yes, I'm ready for relationship with you. Ready? Yes, I'm ready for relationship with you. Ready? Yes, I'm ready for relationship. Shoe up, should we do up? Should we do? Oh oh. Shoe up, should we do up? Should we do? Oh oh. Shoe up, should we do up? Should we do? Thinking of you, hoping you was thinking of me too. Shoo up, should we do up, should we do? Uh-uh. Shoo up, should we do up, should we do? Uh-uh. Shoo up, should we do up, should we do? Uh-uh. Shoo up, should we do together? I wanna get to know you. And I'm doing anything, baby. The rain is stormy weather. Ready? Yes, I'm ready for relationship. Ready? Yes, I'm ready for relationship with you. Ready? Yes, I'm ready for relationship. Girl, you know. Then my love is for sure when you walk my way. 
I don't know what to say the way you walk, the way you talk, it drives me crazy. Ready, it's a ready for relationship with you. Ready, it's a ready for relationship with you. Ready, it's a ready for relationship. Ecstasy. Ecstasy in the house right now. Say your names. Well, funding for this program has been provided by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Elizabeth F. Cheney Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the members of WBEZ Chicago. Tonight's program was produced by Dolores Wilburn by myself, with Elise Spiegel, Peter Connie, and Nancy Updike. Contributing editors Jack Hitt, Margie Rockland, and Mr. Paul Tuff. WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori, Malati- Tori Malatia. That's a really good name to mess up during the credits. <sighs> Special thanks tonight to Amy Sedaris, who gave us the guided meditation for singles tape. To Julie Lafine, whose kisses are still on the floor of the Randolph Street Gallery for one more week. See them before they are scuffed to oblivion. She'll be at Name Gallery with her own Dolores Wilbur, April 19th and 20th. To Jessica Yu, thank you for her film, Breathing Lessons. Her film, Breathing Lessons, The Life and Work of Mark O'Brien, is a co-production of Inscrutable Films and Pacific News Service. Thanks to Luis Rodriguez for his poem, Waiting. His books include Poems Across the Pavement and Always Running, La Vida Loca, Gang Days in L.A. Thanks to the folks at Daniel J. Nellum Youth Services in Chicago, including teacher and poet Koresh Ali, founder and director Glenn Morris, education director Mark Stampley. If you would care to buy a tape of this or other Radio Playhouse programs, call us. Call us, call us at WBEZ, 312-832-3380. You can email us with any comments or thoughts, and we will email you back our address, radio at well.com. And do you remember that really smart, amazing guy in the Iron Lung? You can actually email him. His name is Mark O'Brien, if you want to chat with him. And his uh, email address is marco, M-A-R-K-O, at well.com. We, this Radio Playhouse program, we broadcast proudly from WBEZ Chicago. We'll be back next week with more stories of this here American life. I'm Ira Glass.